This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pograin Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... RPGs as jazz. Dennis Detwiller. The worst genre. And Zodiac Cup Tassiography. Just because something isn't widely known doesn't mean it isn't true. Why, that's one of the entire themes of this here show. In Atlas Games' new cooperative deck-building board game, Witches of the Revolution, you play a coven of witches. You and your allies must deploy your powers to make sure the American Revolution succeeds. And the hated British are cast forever out of these United States. Just like it really happened. Witches of the Revolution is a truly cooperative game without traitor mechanics or backdoor winners, and every player can influence the outcome every turn. It's a subtly different deck builder where adding more cards to your deck can be as perilous as it is helpful, so you have to make good choices. Witches work together to overcome events like the rise of witch hunters, the seizure of printing presses, and enchanted cannons slipping into enemy hands. Overcoming events helps the coven fulfill objectives, like resurrecting Benjamin Franklin or curing Paul Revere of lycanthropy. Fulfill four objectives to win the game and ensure the success of the revolution. Download the rulebook, read more, or check out video reviews at atlas-games.com slash W-O-T-R. Or leave immediately for your local game store. Before it's taken over by the hated British. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the shag-carpeted confines of the gaming hut. But what if, instead of Peter Frampton coming alive, it's Miles Davis feeling kind of blue? Would that change the demographic? Would that change the mood? It would certainly change the atmosphere. There'd be less coming alive. This is by way of introducing a question from Patreon backer Brian Thomas, who asks, please discuss the following logical analogy. And, and folks, there will be no exam. You won't be marked on this. Just... You, you will need a number three pencil, yeah. but you will not need to mark anything with it. Yeah. Don't go into logical analogy shock, folks. No. Right. Orchestra is to jazz combo as Plays Ensemble Cast is to role-playing gaming group. This, uh, to begin with, begs a fairly serious question, but we will perhaps let it stand for the nuns. We, of course, reserve our right to come back and undermine the underpinnings uh, if the segment runs a little <laughs> yes. short. But, Robin, I'm sure you have yes, thoughts. In, in, in the premise rejection hut. We can... Right, yes. We will go, we, we have, we have, a, we have a, a good underminer there. It's got a, right. a, okay. one of those big and, drill and noses. Stipulation number two. Yeah. We, we must keep in mind that all jazz analogies are inherently pretentious. However, right. none so pretentious as the jazz analogies used by jazz musicians to actually talk about jazz. So right. this will only, at worst be the second most pretentious set of jazz analogies. So, I think uh, what we're looking at here is the divide between uh, something structured and something improv. So, uh, naturally so, if you are uh, doing an orchestral piece under the watchful eye of a conductor who is uh, uh, gaining cardiac exercise as your exp at your expense by waving 
her arms above her uh, head and ordering you about to do things that, of course... <laughs> it's just a day in the life. Day in the life. Uh, that is uh, hopefully uh, not what your role-playing experience is like. Right. And uh, so, uh, and of course, all sorts of um, passively consumed uh, narrative entertainment, like uh, a play or uh, even a movie or uh, a, a television episode, are created according to uh, strictures that are set out in advance. And your idea is to hit your mark and say your lines and do the thing and and bring the magic within predetermined uh, confines. And you kind of know where things are going uh, when you are performing a play. Uh, but of course, even then, uh, the whole point of stage performance is that you have that electrical feeling of something going on in the moment. And, uh, you know, that the fact that anything could happen, even if nothing does, is is part of that experience. And so a role-playing game session that feels like a play in which you are acting out roles that are already pre-supplied to you, it's hard to come up with a role-playing analogy to that. Uh, the closest I've come is sort of uh, kind of... Uh, uh, some Nordic uh, free forms, not not the LARP equivalent, but there's also a version of uh, the G form stuff. Yeah, where you are kind of given a script, and your your goal is to work within the confines of that. And uh, uh, people are confused if you go in and do something weird and throw throw them a curveball as a player. And there are and there are some uh, indie games that drive you through a maybe not a script, but at the very least a preset story structure. So you have something like uh, Joe Price's Contender or Jim McClure's uh, Reflections that are meant to create a specific story, not even a specific kind of story at the table. And you are sort of noodling around the edges of it, perhaps, as you improv a bit, but you are still driving along the three-act structure or the inevitable uh, downfall of the kid, uh, Rocky, or, or whatever, right? Right. And just as uh, there are theatrical presentations that have a lot of improv in them, uh, that next analogy then would be to, uh, I suppose, LARP, where you're given characters and there are certain big moments that are supposed to happen and everything that you have been provided as part of your kit is driving you toward those big moments. But there's also considerable uncertainty uh, revolving around that. And so that analogy, I think, then goes as, as far as it can to, uh, you know, our regular, uh, what we're thinking of as a role-playing session where the players are expected to uh, bring something to the table and their choices affect the final outcome just as much as the sax soloist who uh, decides to go in a direction that the rest of the members of the jazz combo are not necessarily anticipating but must uh, react to afterwards. Uh, so that is a, a pretty good base analogy. And I guess the use the, the use I would attempt to put this analogy to, because uh, you, do, you, you don't want a gratuitous logical analogy. That's, right. That's just, just, just sits there. Exactly. That, taking that, up you space. Well, you might as well put that on an exam and have right. to write to it. And you'd have to dust it. Right. Is that I would uh, love to send the message more to players that their uh, goal is to show up and react to what everybody else is doing and uh, throw in a riff for everybody else to pick up and more importantly to pick up on everybody else's riffs and amplify them uh, because we're still living in a sort of a paradigm where in a lot of quarters like this podcast uh, i think we've done a good job over the years uh, and you know even started with the stuff that you and i've been writing since the 90s about encouraging 
the GM to be receptive to what it is that the players are doing and create something that they uh, that depends on what they're doing and that you react to rather than that you impose on your uh, players. But I think we can still go further in encouraging players to show up with a riff, right? Uh, the yeah. analogy I usually use is show up with a ball to throw to, to somebody else and, and hopefully they will pick up the ball. But bring a riff, uh, have something in mind before you show up, and more importantly, be alive in the moment to somebody else's riff. Don't just uh, neg everybody else's riff and shut them down. Yeah. But find a way to build on what other people are bringing to the session that makes it more of that makes it more jazz than uh, sort of you're reacting to the band leader, as you would say in uh, big band jazz. Right. The um, and I think that the analogy uh, we can tease it out a little bit more that the when the saxophonist, like you say, goes off and does his own solo, and people weren't expecting that. Your job is not to bigfoot the sax guy and go back to playing, um, uh, uh, you know, take the A train or whatever. Your job is to build on that riff and then enjoy that riff and follow it in its own sort of natural musical arc around to so you can organically reblend it into take the a train or whatever the the song is that you are playing and uh that even sort of presupposes that you are playing a song but we have to stick to the uh, grounding of the uh, analogy somewhere so the, the the song may have been a song that you all agreed to play when you got together it's not like the band leader or the or the lead trumpeter said all right we're going to play a caravan go to it um you you just started out you know everyone agreed hey let's all play um uh, St. James Infirmary and you know go nuts and and so yeah that that'll be fun and then they start playing it but it's a thing where you can feel in the moment that something is organically righter or wronger, that the music is better or worse, that the energy is higher or lower, and you need to feed the natural progression, even if someone went off on a crazy tear, you have to then lean into it and make that a good crazy tear that then folds back into the main course. And it is your uh, job not to say, but I wanted to do my crazy piano solo, why are they doing their crazy saxophone solo you just follow them around and then they'll follow you around when you break out your awesome uh you know 88 keys back and forth uh riff uh that you have uh brought in your hip pocket maybe you don't get to use it that day because there's only so much time in the recording studio or only so much time in the shag carpeted confines and all right that's great you can take that riff you've got it uh still prepped up you can bring it next time and uh, wait for an opportunity to drop it in, or maybe lead with it. Maybe say, hey, guys, last time we got so into St. James's Infirmary that no one got to hear my cool piano thing. I'd like to start with the cool piano thing, and then let's see where it goes. And that's, again, that's a completely legitimate sort of a, a jazz combo-y type uh, behavior, right? Right. And so the improv analogy in improv theater, of course, is is yes and. We've uh this should be part of everybody's uh, mental repertoire, I would argue. And so that when you see, you know, the equivalent of, you know, the saxophone solo in this is, let's say that you, uh, and this presupposes sort of a sandboxy kind of uh, game, that you are deciding that, okay, this week we're going to finally go and investigate the strange guy in the old house who we met three sessions ago while we were investigating the uh, problems at Innsmouth and we went and talked to that guy. He seemed to be totally different, unrelated to Innsmouth, but we had the sense that something weird was going on and that something weird was going on in his basement. So uh, one of the players comes to the session and says, okay, uh, well, I've been wondering 
there's something about that guy. I think from the expression on his face and like a portrait that I saw over his head, I'm wondering if maybe he is somehow related to all these weird feelings that I've been having about my ancestry. Now, the not jazz way of dealing with that as a fellow player would be to say, oh no, I don't want to go. That guy scared me. I don't want anything to do with him. Now that's fun if you take it up to the point where, oh man, that guy really scared me. If we're going to go there, we need to prepare really well because something about him makes me really nervous. So that's an example of the one is an example of a no, but, you know, forget that. I don't want to do that versus a, uh, okay, if we do do that, I want to build on how scary it is. And I also want to make sure that we are well prepared for it. So I don't feel stupid about going into this thing that, that I feel is, is menacing. And so that's an example of you can either amplify the riff or you can go off and play your own piano part. And you can say, no, no, forget going to talk to that guy. What we really need to do is go uh, and uh, find out what that situation in the morgue was that we heard about two episodes ago. Let's do that instead. So one of those things builds on what player A has said and moves you in a direction toward a narrative. And the other creates a roadblock where now all of the other players have to come down on one side or the other and pick between the weird guy or uh, the other uh, plot line at the morgue. And then there's a big chunk of stuff where you sort of divide up into sides. And then finally, you know, the GM has to mediate that. One of those things is more story forwarding the other. So why don't you find a way to make the story that is already being floated, the riff that's already out there, work for you, rather than saying, ah, I know we're halfway through playing Caravan, but uh, let's play Pyramid instead. <laughs> yeah, they both have an R. That seems yeah. like that should work. Um, yeah, I think that the, the the notion of sort of looking at these things as little sub opportunities to do a part of a story or to do a, a, a story arc or a, or a, or an exploration of a theme, um, maybe will let you think, Oh, we're not never going to go to the morgue. We can always come back and do the morgue. We can always come around. And while we're in the exploration of this guy of, of the creepy ancestor where we're talking to the portraitist or we're trying to find out where he's buried or whatever, maybe we can then lead around and you can say to the, to the GM, when he died, did he, did his body go to that morgue? And when was that? And who was on duty? And the GM can then pick that up. If the GM, for example, actually had something in the morgue and was waiting for you to get to it, can say, why, yes, what an excellent, uh, bit of weirdly, uh, specific deduction you've just made and then bring you back around to the ongoing morgue story. So it's where you've got, uh, maybe a light motif in the music, like the, 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 the main, um, uh, brass is doing one thing, but the pianos and the, and the, and the cymbal is doing another thing. And so you have the sense that, yeah, up here, there's the big action, but down here, we're, we're ready for the, the, the morgue situation to get worse. And the person who wanted to go investigate the ancestor also has the responsibility then to not get in the way of going back around into the main story as opposed to making it all about um, uh, them forever and ever and ever uh, and just endlessly doing dimin diminishing diminuendos if I if I may on the on the theme of their character's ancestry versus the the situation at the house or the situation with the weird uh, family or the weird town or whatever it is you're actually investigating right and so uh, the uh, lesson we can draw from this overall is uh, it is certainly a state to aspire to, and 
uh, I think the the question that is that is activating about this is not so much uh, is role playing like a jazz combo, but how can I uh, be more alert to what everybody is doing, not just the GM, but also the other players, and how do I help make what the other players are doing more fun and interesting, and perhaps more pertaining to me. Yeah. For example, uh, with the with the weird old man. Okay, this other character is introducing their questions about the answer steer thing. So it's like, well, what can I do about myself that, uh, you know, and, and if you've been, uh, searching for your long lost sister, well, there you go. Well, I'll ask when we talk to the weird old man, I will ask him if he knows where to look for my sister. So there's a thing that I can go and make this about the player who suggested it, but also about my character as well, rather than, uh, again saying, the heck with that, I'm going to go look after my sister. So uh, always look for ways to build on what is uh, being done rather than undermining what is being done, which seems like an obvious thing. But uh, everybody uh, who's GM'd for any length of time has seen players undermine what the current idea uh, is on the table. And uh, if you can get them to think of themselves as a part of a team, as part of a combo, we're all creating something together, as opposed to a whole bunch of soloists who are uh, trying to big feed each other uh, that can only be to the good. Now on the topic of, of soloists, I do want to sort of uh, maybe explore a little bit about one of the unstated bits of this analogy is that in a jazz combo, by and large, you don't swap instruments around. You're not playing the clarinet and then halfway through you're playing the trumpet, although th that can happen sometimes, you know, you're, you're going from, from one thing to another as part of a, of, of a, of a big showboaty piece, but the drummer doesn't, you know, get up and start playing bass, right? That, that right. doesn't happen. So in this analogy, the drums or the clarinet are not your approach to the game. They are your character, right? They are the thing that you're not going to be changing up unless something really weird is happening. So, uh, don't think of, uh, the trumpet as the brassy aggressive move. Think of the trumpet as the paladin or the, uh, parapsychologist or whatever the guy is you're playing. So the question is how you're normally, if the parapsychologist or the paladin are up front, it's brassy and aggressive, but how can they provide trumpetness to a scene that is mostly drumming and piano? How do they, uh, bolster the cornet and not drown it out? How do they, uh, riff back and forth with the drum, even though they're in theory, two completely different kinds of instrument. And if you think about the instrument that you're playing as your character, and then think of all the different keys and modulations and speeds and vibratos, if you're playing an instrument that has vibrato, uh, that you could play a given instrument in, and you think about, all right, if even if my character is the, the, the bass drum, the timpani, just a big empty uh, uh, bag that you hit to make uh, fun happen, you can play it fast or slow. You can play it loud or soft. You can play a bunch of different ways. So even if you're playing Thag the Barbarian, there are ways Thag the Barbarian can sound more like part of what's going on or less like part of what's going on. And you should be thinking, and this is something you can easily do. It's not even the question of having a riff. It's a question of just in the moment adjusting play of saying, is Thag the Barbarian more like what's going on or less like what's going on? And if I'm doing less like what's going on, am I doing it for a purpose or am I just doing it because I like banging on the drum? And ideally, you should be 
trying to sound more like what's going on so that everyone can then be playing together as opposed to a bunch of people all playing a different jazz standard. Right. Or you play a fun contrast that doesn't slow anything or misdirect anything down. It adds a a little musical joke or or like I was saying, a leitmotif or a contrapunto. Right. So if it would not normally be Thag the Barbarian's bag to go and talk to the weird guy uh, up on the hill, uh, but uh, everybody else wants to go there, you can sort of uh, be wisecracking about that and, uh, you know, play his reluctance without, as a player, saying, let's not do this. Yes, you can play out his have... sort of creepy, his superstition and his worry that the guy's a necromancer. Right. So let's have more fun with his reluctance without stopping the thing that he's reluctant about uh, from happening. Well, the thing I'm reluctant to do is to continue uh, to natter on, because uh, even for a jazz uh, rendition of Caravan, uh, 15 minutes is about as far as we want to go. It's so, about as long as you need it to be, yeah. Yes. So let's uh, uh, head through a uh, commercial, and I think on the other side of the commercial, we will tumble back in time. There is, by certain unreliable and maddening account, and now, by your own dreadful experience, a city on the eastern seaboard of the United States in northern Massachusetts. You do not recall seeing it on maps when you were growing up? No one of your acquaintance ever admitted coming from that place. Now you find yourself living within its eerie confines. A city of windowless cyclopean skyscrapers. Of crumbling Baroque buildings. And ruins that must impossibly predate human habitation in this part of the world. Welcome to Cthulhu City. A surreal nightmare supplement for Trail of Cthulhu. From your deceptively kindly mayor of Terror Town, Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. And the cosmically indifferent minds at Pulgrain Press. Evade the watchful eyes of cultish authorities. Pursue intrigue and action down the city's twisted streets. And defy the will of the living gods. In In Cthulhu Cthulhu City. Welcome once more to another segment of Ken and or Robin Talk to Someone Else. Once more, we are flung backward vertiginously in time, kidnapped by the great race of Yith, pulled through the eons to Gen Con of 2017, and that noise is not the clacking of chronotons or the banging of time gears. It is, in fact, a hotel renovating a hotel during its busiest week. So, well done, everybody. Welcome to Hotel Management 202. Well, the, 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 the contractor said that they would arrive between May and November, that someone should be here to let them in. That's that's good. I'm, I'm glad that they had a, a window of uh, of that precision. Speaking of precise windows, our guest is the limner of said windows onto a world of cosmic horror, ultimate nightmare, and social degradation. Uh, and I don't mean the regular windows, like everyone has to that world. I mean a special art window, because our guest is the lovely and talented Dennis Detwiller, one of the original Troika who created Delta Green. Dennis, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Hey, how are you guys doing? Uh, uh, I am shocked and appalled at the condition of your living space. It is a little scary. As you should be. Um, But thanks. Uh, So, Dennis, uh, Delta Green has just dropped, obviously, the savvy, the cognoscenti, the first responders, the the true influencers have already snapped it up from the store. But uh, other people, 
uh, people who perhaps had family emergencies or sick pets, couldn't quite get there, can now jump on it. What are they going to find when they pick up the Delta Green Core book, besides, of course, a few thousand words of my Deathless prose? Yeah, Ken, well, besides the Ken Height magic, uh, Delta Green, uh, the book, we're calling it the Handler's Guide. Uh, covers everything in Cosmic Horror and the Delta Green universe. So from beginning to end, uh, magic, monsters, places, things, and the entire Delta Green timeline, all the threats that you've come to love in the former Delta Green books are kind of scooped up, put together in a huge kind of cohesive timeline with a breakdown of how to kind of make it your own, how to run campaigns in the 1940s, the 1950s, the 1960s, the 1970s, modern day, um, and yeah, way, way too much writing, basically. So where, how did this version of Delta Green evolve from your first uh, meeting of the Triumvirate to its final version? How did it uh, wind up uh, changing from what you thought it would be when you first started talking about doing it? Uh, do you mean the, the 1996? No, I mean this, the, the, <laughs> oh, the this version? gorgeous Redux version. Uh, well, I mean, as people are listening to this, they can go and find it. Yeah, place. I mean, this we, we really had a clear idea where we wanted to go, and we put it we put it in front of a bunch of people we trust, uh, like you know Ken, uh, and said, "What if we did this?" Uh, the biggest problem was trying to figure out where we go from the you don't trust the government, you know, classic 1990s occult. Ooh, X-Files, scary stuff. That's all transformed. That's all changed. Of course you don't trust the government. Nobody trusts the government. So where do you go from there? That was the biggest question. How do we go back to trusting the government? (laughs) Yes, yes. yes. So we, we, we took a theme and basically ran with it of be careful what you wish for. It's wish fulfillment for Delta Green. You get everything you want. You get the Predator drone. You you get the $3.5 billion slid to some anonymous account in Switzerland that you can use to target occult figures across the globe. But it all blows up in your face. It all just gets worse. And that's the truth of Delta Green, is no matter what you bring to bear, what you're fighting, not only do you not even understand it, you, you can't identify it. And when it comes for you, there's really nothing you can do. So, Ken, you've been following this process. Yes. How would you say it has evolved from uh, the initial conception of the new version to what is finally available for people in stores? Well, one of the sort of amusing bits is because this is, like all uh, projects that uh, the Delta Green Partnership has done, it's one of those, it'll cook till it's ready to be served projects. So we were doing, I think, our first conversations back in the first so the second Bush term yeah. of the second Bush presidency. And we were like, oh, man, war on terror, Iraq. Are we going to be able to sensitively talk about the war in Iraq? Yep. But we've got the whole Cheney stovepipe, and maybe that would work. And then Obama comes along. Yeah. And, and then Ken perks up. It's like, hey, guys, how about that drone warfare? How about some Panopticon state? Delta Green Obama. This yeah. is going to be it. And Dennis uh, and uh, and uh, Shane and Scott just clung to the walls, <laughs> hoping against hope that another Republican would come along. That was the plan. All that along. was the plan. Oh, all so along. it's your and fault. on the yes. "be careful what you wish for" metric, <laughs> yeah, Dennis yeah. has won the lottery. I, as a person who grew up in New York City, I would like to disavow uh, the current sitting president. Uh, you know, and anyway. the guy who currently lives in Vancouver—that is your luxury. <laughs> he said, "From Canada." Yes. Um, <laughs> Yes. Yes. Um, so the uh, so the you know uh, and one of the things that obviously historians know and uh, presidential historians I think know really well is that the culture of the White House has you know, it changes depending on who's sitting there and even 
presidents of the same ideological proclivity will run different houses different ways. Presidents in the same decades will run different houses different ways. And uh, the contrast, a little stark in this one, <laughs> but the feeling of Delta Green uh, that I, you know, sort of have, have been watching, you know, progress ever since 96 when I learned about it. Uh, and it was Clinton we were all worried about. Oh, the fun days that was. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, why was he impeached? What was that? What was that, what was that, that serious matter? That was- uh, perjury. Anyway, um, so the uh, so the interesting bit to me is to watch the way that this fictional universe keeps responding to the real universe. Because just as a note to our more excitable listeners, it is made up. There is no Delta Green. Never existed. This is not a bailout. <laughs> Although we are. You know, in in one of the Times New York, New York Times bestseller lists uh, last year, I think uh, what was it? Uh, a covert affair. Yeah. Delta Green is referenced as a factual thing, and I, I've occasionally gotten letters. I've also turned up on Netflix specials where someone will show my Karatekia map. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> which is a little disconcerting, but yes, it's all fake. I assure you. Right. I'm, I'm so not... it's been absorbed into actual conspiracy I, culture. Yeah, yeah. Oh yes, it's going into actual legitimate history culture. <laughs> Because everything is terrible, as I think we may have alluded to previously. Yeah, The Covert Affair is just a straightforward biography of Julia Child and her life in the OSS. And guess what? Someone's garbage at research. So there you go, kids. Yeah, well, I mean, it kind of, you know, it, it is in Southeast Asia. They, they, they probably she's a cook they the chocho are there you know yeah. it's you put it all together it, it tells an interesting yes. little story it's, it's a lovely which tale. is wholly fictional right um, but anyway the uh, the way that you take something that is an established IP that's an established concept that has its own flavor but you have to rhyme that or fit that in to current events even if the storyline had remained identical yeah. the presentation of Delta Green has to change yeah. from Clinton to W, to Obama, yep. to Trump. Well, it really didn't sing until we had that, uh, maybe it was three Gen Cons ago, we had, a, we had a very large meeting. And someone said, why would, you know, why would the classic Delta Green come in from the cold to, to the guys who have all the checks? And yeah. they know that's a mistake. Why right. would they ever, why would the old, the so nasty we, old men ever? We saw ever, this movie, yeah. it was called Apocalypse Now. And, and, <laughs> and it's, we came to the, why, why not both? kind of decision where right. there is the huge kind of uh, intra-department conspiracy hidden like a tick in the NSA that kind of oversees and spends and kills. And then there are the, the good old boys who are just like, screw you. I was there when this started. I'm I'm not coming in. We Someone needs to keep the door shut. That's that's my job. And they're breaking the law. They're doing awful stuff. And, and I just wanted to see how dark we could go with that stuff. And as, and as, you, uh, as, as you read and research legitimate espionage history, legitimate uh, uh, history of modern warfare and modern political warfare, political actions, you recognize that this is not a stretch. Oh, yeah. That no. The CIA has plenty of these cowboys and deniable contractors and people who are just sort of parked somewhere, and during some administrations, they get a little closer to Langley, and others, they get a yeah. little farther from Langley, but at no point are they, you know, out, completely out taken out uh, in either sense of the term. And so it doesn't have the, We don't quite have the Putin cleanup method, yet, right? Yeah, it's not, not down yet. Yeah. Not they're quite. working on it. Yes, we're early days yet, and <laughs> cleanup does not seem to be a priority of anyone. So that's good, I guess. Well, it, it's a priority question, right? Frankly. Yes. So the so the uh, one of the things that is great about Delta Green it was great back when you know Scott you know was uh, vomiting forth entire uh, copies of the U.S. intelligence community onto his fingers. Um, is the 
plausibility. The, uh, the Lovecraft says that for a weird tale to work, it has to have the verisimilitude of a hoax. And that's why it's hard to get mad at the Julia Child biographer. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. being took by a hoax is uh, our goal. Yeah, yeah. We want you to stop and go, wait, that's real, that's real, that's yep. real. That I know is real. That's just like a thing I read. Maybe there are more gore. Yes. <laughs> and it, it has happened quite a bit. I've gotten a lot of emails where I'm, I'm you know... I'm I'm a disinformation agent. Like I've literally gotten an email saying this stuff on the Mego, blah blah blah, the Grays. This sounds very much like my book. And did you know I'm being kidnapped? Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, I, <laughs> I this is a game, and I don't know you, and I'm very sorry that you're being kidnapped. Um, and it's really difficult to deal with that sometimes. But um, the really the really cool stuff uh, comes out when you. I truly had a wonderful moment where I sat down and watched the PBS special on the program, which was on uh, about the NSA and about the NSA program to mass surveil the world. Right. And it literally contradicted nothing from Delta Green. It was like they're on the edge of the Delta Green conspiracy right now. And it, it reads exactly right. Point for point. Now, why does this make? Oh, and, yeah. and it was like, oh, that's kind of creepy. Um and that was a month later, you know, like we wrote it earlier and it just all came kind of made sense. I mean, that's, I guess that's what knowing the field feels like. Yeah. I, I, I Nothing like Delta Green's uh, excited fan base. I've gotten stuff, people asking me after Night's Black Agents came out there, what clearance did you hold? It's like uh, the clearance of being a guy who reads a lot of spy books and has an internet connection. <laughs> The well, clearance of art, sir. The muse is my clearance. Well, we, we, we also, you know, some of the other great stuff that brings, you know, that we bring to Delta Green is we, we have developed a lot of military contacts who we, you know, obviously can't talk about. Right. Um, but we, you know, we have multiple, multiple tour vets. Notice, from folks, the previous disavowals being slowly <laughs> walked back. This is called the modified limited hangout. <laughs> Um, you know, for example, the, the lethality rules that, that kind of made it to the final version of Delta Green to simplify just like, yeah, you're dead, mm-hmm. um, had to take into account uh, a Marine major. Well, well, I saw a cruise missile hit a hotel and a guy walk out twice. That has happened to him twice in his life. Yeah. Un- unless the rules can do that and it makes some sort of sense, it's not really working. Now, is this a cruise missile that detonated? Yeah, oh, yeah. It took, it took the whole building down two times and two separate buildings, and he just happened to be there with binoculars watching this whole thing. But it wasn't the same guy walking out. No. Because I may have solved a different problem than the rules not working. One, one would hope it's not the same fellow. That's right. Although it's possible. No, it's, uh, um, uh, it's from uh, Al Qaeda on Krypton. It's yes. Stephen Alziz. Different yes. role. Yeah. Um, it was a totally different guy because the first one he had a forelock, okay, and the second, second one he was wearing glasses. Just wearing glasses, so it wasn't the same guy at all. So anyway, we uh, we also have guys in the you know the Library of Congress. One of, one of the fellows marks everything up for us, and we'll do. Oh, we need a 1942 clearance for a war, you know. And he'll just go in and stamp everything. And well, here's here's the font you want to use, and and it just makes everything pop. So uh, moving, yeah, as you have set us up to move into sort of the visual, as much as you're known as a designer and a scenario, a scenario writer and a, and a game designer. Among your many threats. Among your many threats. <laughs> you're also, of course, tip-top artist. Oh. And so the look of Delta Green is very much the Dennis Detwiller vision of Delta Green. Yeah. And can you talk about maybe how you look at this face is covered in pus and bullet holes and maggots? But it's not really a Delta Green face covered in yeah. pus. Is there a 
is there a filter that's in your mind? How does that work that you say this is Delta Green, this is not Delta Green? Yeah, uh, you know, I, I guess the big takeaway is it, everything has to be seeded in the real world to to an absurd degree. And if it's not, if you can't if you can't look at the exit sign behind the dimensional shambler, if you can't you know, if, if you can't see that the gun is a real gun on the table with a People magazine and Justin Bieber on the cover, where the entrails are sprayed, and it, it doesn't, it doesn't. That, by the way, is an underrated Bieber album. Yeah, when the entrails. <laughs> where are the entrails are sprayed. Yeah. Um, it, it, Delta Green is all about placing, you know, horrific, awful things in the real world, um, and and I try and hit that in the art a lot. Um, sometimes I miss, but um, it. It tends to set Delta Green apart um, because you'll get different artists. You'll get some are, some pieces are cartoony, some are way more realistic. You know, in an average game book, and I just really, I, I really, I'm, I've been inspired by Miles Teeves, uh, Skyrealms of Jeroen. Right. He just basically hold my stuff. I got to go make a world, and he went off and painted these incredible things. I got to go look at Jeroen and paint it. Yeah, yeah, he literally, he was. It's like he was in the field doing this mm. stuff, uh, and. Uh, I, I love that book just visually, um, so I wanted to kind of mimic that. So, did anything change uh, in the, the the palette or the visual approach uh, from the previous versions to this one? Other than you're just being gooder at art, uh, yeah, than, gooder. Other than it's a Glock instead of a Beretta. Now? <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, the the biggest change is that we can go full color. Um, previously, that was really not even an option. Count, Delta Green Countdown, the the last kind of huge book. Um, we were happy to have black and white. We were like, "Yay, we can put in gray tones," yeah. um, and that was considered. We were, you know, we had no money. We hadn't, and now we can actually afford to do this. So we want to do it right. So uh, colors is there a is there a palette that like a cinematographer will have? You'll say Delta Green's colors are blue and bruise purple <laughs> and gray, or is it just individual? Issues? Is it a cinematic look, or is yeah. it just photographic? It's definitely it's definitely cinematic. I, I want I, um, if you've ever seen a Michael Mann film, right? You know, every scene has a a, a primary and a secondary color. Every scene has a, a a primary and a secondary light source, and they're all slightly off from each other. And you can kind of you get the mood. You know, when the, when the two the you know Vincent and the uh, and and the, the cop are sitting in the diner, it's this deep blue with kind of fluorescent lights. I try and pull each scene and make it, try and set it in a location. So outside at night, in the tunnels, that kind of stuff. So I'm always looking at references and, and watching movies, basically. Um, well, and what our Delta Green fan listeners want to know is what's next. What you've, So you finally got this out. Yes. Um, oh, my God. So uh, seven years from now, when you get the next book out, what, <laughs> well, what will for, it for be? For Pence's second term. Well, well here, here, here's the really cool part is, is now I'm working full time on Delta Green. So, uh, Impossible Landscapes is... Uh, and that's thanks, uh, not least, to your Patreon. No, the, pa- the Patreon account has been fantastic, and, and the, the Delta Green fans are just amazing. Uh, and I'm also... Anybody who pitches in more than $10 a month for Patreon um, is up for running to get an original piece of Delta Green art from Countdown, from Delta Green. And I'm, I have another 35 of them. So... I'm just going through those month by month. But so get out your ten dollars. Yeah, people. get, get yeah. on in. But um, Impossible Landscapes is the next, uh, and, and that is the Delta Green King and Yellow campaign. Um, oh, taking a run at the Robin. <laughs> no, no, no. 
This is very different. This is yeah. this is basically uh, taking night floors from the original Delta Green right. and the night floors kind of mythos and making an entire cohesive campaign out of that. It's going to be about 300 pages. I've written about 75% of it. Uh, the cover's done. A bunch of the art's done. I ran... Uh, I was running it for role-playing public radio. I ran about six sessions for them, and they're having... A disturbing time. Uh, Excellent. Um, so yeah, that'll be up next for me. And uh, there's also um, and for those who don't know, uh, and why should you? But Dennis is one of the probably in the fingers of my hand I could count GMs that I've played under who are better than Dennis. Uh, oh, Dennis wow. is aces. Thank you. Uh, Thank so you. Uh, sorry, I got to you didn't. That's how it works. Maybe there's a level <laughs> of Patreon. I don't know. Go to his Patreon and find out. Yeah. Uh, that. Yeah. I mean. Um, I, we offer up new scenarios, new monsters, new magic every month, uh, and we just have a great time doing it. So um, moving full-time to Delta Green means a lot of things. It means I can kind of focus on this and sec- and secondarily focus on um, I'm writing the next Delta Green novel, um, which is called uh, A Thousand Darkened Rooms, um, and uh, that is going very dark right now, but I'll, we'll see if I come well, out the other that's end. That's good, because uh, I think your fans have become worrying about the candy floss <laughs> sentimentality of your previous Delta Green work. Well, you know, if you've interviewed Greg Stolte on here, I, I, I consistently have to sit Greg down and we have we have the big talk, right? where it's like, it's not a human humanocentric universe, Greg. Nobody, humans aren't going to make it. <laughs> you have to, you have to put this in your heart and you have to, and he'll well, go, I don't want to, I don't want to. It's good that someone is talking Greg down off that Pollyannish optimism <laughs> that has been characteristic of his work. You're doing the Lord's work. I here, just Dennis. love how I'm way down the spectrum, away <laughs> yeah. from from the bleak despair of Greg Stolte. Yeah, makes me super happy. You've, you've got know. a beautiful beach to look at. Exactly. <laughs> well, and, and whereas I'm, Greg lives in um, uh, Aurora, so yeah. that I think soul crushing explained all of it. Uh, well, on that note of geographical despond, thank you so much, Dennis, for joining us. Oh, thanks, guys. It was great to talk to you. Eight years ago, the terrorist agents of Havoc triggered a nuclear nightmare that devastated the Northern Hemisphere. Patiently in scattered colonies deep underground, survivors have been waiting for the radiation to ebb. That day has come. But the real battle for survival has only just begun. In Freeway Warrior 1 Highway Holocaust, you are Cal Phoenix, the Freeway Warrior, champion and protector of Dallas Colony 1. Murderous Havoc bikers hunt your fragile convoy as it crosses the wastelands of Texas. Defending your people and reaching your destination intact requires all the wit and courage you can muster. Highway Holocaust, an exclusive hardcover with dust jacket and book ribbons, is the first choose-your-own-adventure game book in Joe Deaver's post-apocalyptic Freeway Warrior series. From the fine folks at Phoenix, now available from Modifius. Ensure that only your notes are blue by joining such Patreon backers as... Nate Merritt. John Groff. Paul Richmond. Rafe Ball. And Dreaming Johnny. The rising action, as we climb towards a peak at the pinnacle of Freitag's Triangle, tells us that we are moving 
ineluctably towards the climax of the narrative hut. And in the narrative hut, uh, Patreon backers Andrew Miller and Dan O'Hanlon have prepared a character moment for Robin to, um, uh, as you know, Bob them, asking, <laughs> why does Robin call coming of age the worst genre, especially when biopic is the worst genre? That may not have been what Andrew and Dan asked. That's Ken's edition. It's well, worth asking. So, so now you've gone and put a wrong thing in there, in their perfectly good question. Uh-huh. Well, it's a, it's, it's a narrative hut. It's not the freaking Mies van der Rohe hut that has nothing in it except the question. Yes. And this is also a tell me more uh, segment, uh, the, the uh, often invisibly labeled tell me more segment. So uh, I mentioned this in my uh, review of Lady Bird, um, and I don't want to come off as... This is not the Ken and Robin fight about Lady Bird hut. No. And I don't want to, uh, there's the danger that I will make it seem as if I disliked Lady Bird more than I did. And, and so I think Lady Bird is, uh, a well executed rendition of the coming of a genre that shows its inherent flaws. And the, uh, primary objection I have to coming of age stories, and there's a whole bunch of secondary ones as well, is that it is the wrong form of dramatic irony that, uh, and I guess I'll start off by defining for my purposes, what constitutes a coming of age story. And that is, uh, one in which the, uh, adult narrator either, uh, directly uh, or through, uh, secondary sing- signaling, as is uh, the case in Lady Bird, uh, looks back on their, ch- uh, their passage from childhood into adulthood. So that it's a, a retrospective look from an adult point of view of the experience of growing up. And that inherent to that is a a form of dramatic irony where us fellow adults know where the character is uh, being uh, naive at best or often sort of a chump. And we see the mistakes being made before they're made. And that it is essentially often, and often because these are autobiographical, is the a uh, writer is condescending to their own past selves, that the the viewpoint of the story is not the character in the story at the time with the knowledge and feelings that they have, but of someone looking back on the past through a gauze of uh, nostalgia, which is itself a vice. All right. Leaving aside the question of whether or not the gauze of nostalgia is a vice, and I would say that it is a drug, certainly, and like many drugs, you can use it right and you can use it wrong. But I will say that uh, the notion of dramatic irony, of survivor's dramatic irony, is pretty well established as the f- one of the foundational structures of all Western literature, right? I mean, that's the Odyssey, is survivor's dramatic irony. Is right, that's not a coming-of-age story, and the Odyssey no. does not condescend to the character. I think that you are reading into the question of does something condescend or does something not condescend? Because certainly if the narrator of the Odyssey is Odysseus, he is saying, man, did I screw that up? (laughs) He's not saying this was, this is a narrative of my complete triumphs. It's the, uh, this is how I barely. It's not the condescension of the adult toward the, uh, the child, right? It's not the uh, adult taking their own past self and now essentially becoming parent to their own past self in uh, the most condescending way. Right. So you, what you're objecting to is not the use of, of dramatic irony. You're objecting pretty much particular sort of to dramatic condescension. Irony. Right. That the, right. Uh, that the uh, author is betraying their lead character, that they are chumping the protagonist. And that, that's almost always uh, what happens 
uh, in a coming-of-age story. Uh, for example, in Lady Bird, there's the first boyfriend, and the audience knows something about that first boyfriend and sort of chuckles long before the uh, lead character, who does not have the, the grounding to, to know that thing, finds that heartache. And so the, right. when the inevitable mo- moment comes, it's very heavily telegraphed, and uh, the, the lead character is the last to know. And that, of course, is another big flaw of narrative, is that allowing the audience to get ahead of the character, again, chumps the character. Right. And that's a universal thing, whether we're talking about the naturalistic drama that is a coming-of-age story, uh, or a procedural in which we see the hero making a dumb mistake. And so, uh, with the perspective of adulthood, is the coming-of-age story usually presents the series of dumb mistakes that the character makes, and, and you, as a uh, as an nostalgic a- adult, get to uh, chuckle at uh, at the dumbness uh, of uh, teenagers in general, and and of course, and perhaps your own past self. Mm-hmm. Well, sh- short of having actual teenagers write the film, films about teenagers are going to be stories about people doing dumb things because that is literally the point of being a teenager. But you can do it within the uh, passion and understanding of that character, so that the the dumb things that they can do is you can make the audience identify directly in the moment with the character uh, rather than looking at them from the distance of, oh, ho, ho, we've seen where this is going. And, uh, you know, there are plenty of vital stories with teenage protagonists, but they are not, uh, in my definition at least, coming-of-age stories in that they are, uh, you feel vitally in the moment. Uh, One of the big tip-offs, of course, is if a coming-of-age story is almost always set in the past. So one way to, if you want to write a story about teenagers that is something else, that is a quest or a romance or uh, any number of other genres, set it in the present and uh, take away that veil of nostalgia and try and get in the actual headspace of the uh, character rather in the, than in the headspace of the uh, adult uh, sort of ruefully looking back. All right. Um, leaving aside the fact that Emma has literally the exact same story structure and is a masterpiece, um, what would you say to a film such as Dazed and Confused, which is a coming-of-age uh, drama that is set abso- even more firmly in the past than uh, Lady Bird is and plays many, if not all, of its characters for chumps and does it over a, a fairly compressed narrative space so it doesn't even have realism in that w- in the same way that Lady Bird has. Do you feel that Dazed and Confused is worst genre or that Linklater is not chumping his own protagonists, which I think leads to it being a what Robin thought in the moment as opposed to an Olympian detachment type discussion? Um, I think that he, uh, by doing an ensemble piece... Uh, that that diffuses it, first of all, so that there's no single protagonist being uh, chumped, and that the uh, there's almost sort of a fly-on-the-wall quality to that that makes it... Uh, the lesson learning is, is, uh, is not a big feature of Dazed and Confused. It's an experience that you see them go through, and so I would argue that that is more experiential uh, than... Uh, and even though it has, you know, obviously healthy dollops of a nostalgia to it that the and I think part of it is because the consequences of this are 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 not slammed down on the on the characters or there's no you know scene at the end where they all realize that their parents were right all along right but that that subtext oh someday you too will be a parent and then you will understand life 
mm-hmm. is not part of Dazed and Confused. That the vitality of that and the thing that makes that film uh, work and makes that appeal to generation after generation of uh, young people who feel that's their movie, even though they were not in Austin, Texas in 1978, is because it very effectively remains within their worldview, that you do not get the uh, visible or invisible narrator going and uh, and and just like you know his his later sort of follow up to that everybody wants some again it feels very much uh, in the moment and even though it celebrates that time and the joy of uh, being on your own it's not about uh, teaching those characters rueful lessons about the world of adulthood all right um so it, now is it the question of ruefulness that is the thing as opposed to the didacticism because uh the oh, 400 I'll take, blows I'll take either is being bad because the 400 blows for example is super didactic but there's not a lot of rue it's just a uh, you know you gotta toughen up if you're gonna be a grown man type movie i think both of those are bad 400 blows also has another issue and this tends to be around stories with much younger children as that one is which is that the the protagonist is essentially just entirely projection and has uh, no specific character traits, and so that would be it's because uh, they're the they're the sort of the um, lump of fat that will be licked into the bear cub that is Truffaut, yeah. right? So it's sort yeah. of the, the every child, mm-hmm. and, and there's also the issue of agency, right? Is that uh, characters in these stories, uh, unless it's a quest, you know, uh, unless their parents are blown up or sidelined so that they can go and do things often the story is about not having agency and not being stuck and not being able to start your life. And again, uh, that is, uh, to me, uh, narratively frustrating and something that you want to uh, lean out of rather than lean into that. You yeah. I'd much rather see a narrative about someone who's able to do things rather than they're going through that horrible last year of school where they're, uh, you know, it's time for them to go and actually really go out and make choices in the world. And the whole, conflict is that the uh, structures of parents in school are uh, trying to keep them back and stop them from going and, and making choices. Again, I'm feeling that your response to uh, Ladybird specifically, and perhaps to this constellation of uh, invited uh, approaches to the coming of age film, uh, nostalgia, condescension, and didacticism are you know, it's legitimate to say, I don't like a condescending didactic nostalgia film. And sure enough, many coming of age films invite that specific problem. But when you start making formal arguments, I keep noticing unqualified masterpieces that exactly match that format, such as City of God, which is a coming of age film in which the guy looks back. We know he's making a series of terrible decisions throughout. And it's it's probably more nostalgic if you were in Brazil. So you can recognize the difference between 60s Brazil and 80s Brazil. Well, but th- this um, is where you get to films that uh, <laughs> undercut the uh, coming of age aspects by fusing them with something good. Like the, like the, uh, the thriller film. aspect of City of God. Or the or, gangster aspect of City of God. Or the gangster aspect. Or the Hitchcockian suspense aspect of Stand By Me. That the right. those things are redeemed by those elements which make them no longer pure coming-of-age naturalistic dramas, but uh, have the sort of uh, sort of agency and suspense and cool things that uh, make you engage with them. And that a strictly... A uh, naturalistic version of City of God that lacks those elements uh, <laughs> would not be good because of those. You know, the things that that make that transcend is it's 
half of this and half something actually right. good that does not lead you to betray your own character. Is that it's an alchemical blend that, uh, because it's a genre that invites more agency or more illusion of agency, the gangster film can be argued as a completely unagented, uh, drama because we know the protagonist is going to come to a bad end. Well, there's, there's, a, there's, you, they continually use their agency to get somewhere where you generally know they're going, which is, I right. would argue, a separate thing. Right. But the notion that uh, it's the alchemical blend of the genre in with another genre that, by definition, has to either elevate or provide the illusion of elevation to the protagonist to work, such as the gangster film, even though you can argue that they never have any more agency than a teenager, uh, but that they look like they do and that that's the fun part of watching it is you're not, you know, you're identifying with Scarface, even though, you know, he's going to be taken down at the end or, um, uh, Cagney and public enemy, but you just want to see it because it's so much fun to follow that ride. So that would be like the Ferris Bueller's day off, uh, uh or, uh, in a different key Rushmore that so much, fun stuff is happening that you don't mind that the characters are basically um, going through exactly the same sort of uh, position that you object to with uh, the protagonist of Lady Bird. Right. And something can be the worst genre without having every single version of that be terrible. Right. Uh, the biopic, yeah, there are of like course, three good you, you know, your selection of the biopic has the same issue with it, uh, which is that Lawrence of Arabia exists. Mm -hmm. um, and, the re the reason, very briefly, that I would not pick the biopic as the worst genre, although there is a the, the argument to be made for that is that statistically speaking, perhaps <laughs> the, the biopic is the worst genre because it is the one where contemporary filmmakers are most likely to get it wrong. But right. that's that uh, my argument is empirical, whereas yours is formal. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> if you and just so, look at all biopics, ninety nine percent of them are terrible, as opposed to only ninety percent. <laughs> right, but that's not uh, that's not inherent to the biopic. Uh, and in fact, there's an easy solution to that, which all of the great biopics follow, which is find the part of a life that has a through line and a beginning, a middle, and an end, and do that part. Mm -hmm. And so that's where you have uh, Lawrence Arabia, and that's where you get. Uh, uh, Capote, and that's where you get uh, young Mr. Lincoln and, uh, uh, and uh, Malcolm Lincoln X as, as, as well. And yeah. so uh, that's uh, one where there is a an easy solution. Also, I wouldn't call it the worst genre because the biopic, by definition, is limited to a single form, whereas coming of age stories uh, in appear in prose fiction and have all the same problems. Right. And that's true. The prose biographies um, uh, are supposed to be like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Although I'm sure that somewhere there is uh, some poor historian who has had to read a bunch of different biographies, who has got very strong opinions about what the good ones are and what the bad ones are. Well, um, yes. I mean, you, you certainly do see that in, uh, and sometimes quite acclaimed uh, nonfiction biographies. It's like, you haven't found the through line for this and you're not, you know, you're not yes. doing the storytelling part of and, this. And I think you're kind of chumping Alexander Hamilton, frankly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Looking back on your, <laughs> Uh, on your childhood as Alexander Hamilton. On the, on, the, on the naivete of believing that you could have a strong yeah, federal government. Yeah, you should have known that your boyfriend was gay. Uh, well, on that you note... You should have known that, Alexander known. Hamilton. Uh, it's time to uh, move on uh, to uh, yet another uh, segment in which uh, it will not be about the thing that I always say. What I think Delta Green, Arc Dream's classic and newly revived role-playing game of rogue intelligence operatives against the Cthulhu Mythos, I think Paranoia, Go Bags, 
guns. And opera. Uh, say what now? Delta Green, A Night at the Opera. Six terrifying scenarios for Delta Green, the role-playing game. Reverberations. Viscid. Music from a darkened room. Extremophilia. The Star Chamber. And Observer Effect. Written by Dennis Detwiller, Shane Ivey, and Greg Stoltze, these scenarios have been available only in PDF and in standalone paperback modules. Get them in a full-color hardback to match your agent's handbook and the upcoming Handler's Guide. Delta Green, A Night at the Opera is available to pre-order at shop.arcdream.com. It ain't over till the fat lady reveals herself as a servitor of Yagalanak. It's time once more to wend our way up the cobweb stairs, and there's the portrait of Madame Blavatsky, and we will wave cheerily at it, but once again she will glower down at us. We're just not warming her up. But anyway, we're heading on into the Edwardian parlor, and there, sitting in a cracked leather chair, wearing his dressing gown, uh, perhaps even smoking a pipe, who knows, is the consulting occultist. And this time, Hoyle Anderson, Patreon backer Hoyle Anderson, uh, has a question for the consulting occultist that now I tried to do a little bit of research ahead of time to, to have, uh, you know, some sort of uh, direction in my questioning. But this time, this topic, uh, congratulations, Hoyle Anderson, is so obscure that the first page of searches is mostly Etsy uh, items. <laughs> so, Ken, I sure hope you have 15 minutes on this. Zodiac Cup Tassiography. Uh, and uh, Hoyle asks for a book recommend, if possible. I also hope there's a book recommend, because that would imply that you have 15 minutes of, of yeah. material in this. So uh, Zodiac Cup Tassiography from Etsy, I was able to tell, is Tassiography, of course, folks, is uh, is tea reading, performing oracles and auguries with, uh, with tea in the bottom of your cup. But uh, a Zodiac Cup helps you out by having a whole bunch of complicated uh, Zodiac designs and stuff on the bottom of the cup to uh, guide... Uh, where things are going, uh, so that your uh, clumps of, of uh, tea leaves is not just on a uh, the bottom of a regular old teacup, but there it might be sitting on uh, on Leo or or Libra or or what have you. So Ken, uh, flesh this out for us. Okay, I will flush this out for you. Tassiography, the art of tea leaf reading, seems to have begun in the probably the 18th century. And I say probably dragging it out like that because for tea leaf reading to be a thing, first of all, people have to be drinking tea. Second of all, right. there have to be enough middle-class people drinking tea that you've developed pointless time-wasting things to do with it. If it's only working-class people, they've got better things to do. If it's only rich people, there's not enough of them. You need a, right. a solid mass of the middle class. And, and we're talking Europe here, right? The arrival right, yes. of tea in Europe. Yes. In, in China, they no doubt have all manner of crazy things you do with tea, but it doesn't seem to have involved tea leaf reading. Right. Well, they've got turtle shells and yarrow sticks. Yes, they've they got yarrow sticks. They've got the e-jing. They don't need your, your nonsense tea leaves. And just to uh, help out the people who want to know, tea leaf reading is basically you drink your tea, you look at the tea leaves that are left, which means, again, the tea leaf reading begins its inevitable decline in 1908 with the introduction of the tea bag. <laughs> yeah, so... Now, are we using a tea infuser here? Or is this just escapees? It's loose-leaf tea. It's loose-leaf right. tea. You put the tea in the bottom, you pour the uh, hot water over it, it infuses and steeps, and there you go. Boom. Uh, so, so no containment whatsoever. No containment. I don't know how you don't get tea 
leaves in your teeth, but I don't live in well, that old is the number one prediction of, of yes. passiography is, is you're you about get to have leaves stuff in your stuck in your teeth. Right. But the leftover uh, bits of tea and you, you begin by swirling the tea and uh, dumping it out, dumping the dregs out on the saucer. And then you turn your, your teacup back up and the, the leaves that have stuck to it as you swirl and some and it's like you have to swirl it three times winter shins or whatever, all right. kinds of crazy ways. Um, and those leaves will be stuck and the leaves will make little shapes and the little shapes send messages. So if you see a mouse, it is a sign of poverty, right? That's what that means. And then there's about 200 or so sort of canonical tea leaf shapes, which implies that the Victorians are the people who did this to us, because whenever there are a canonical 200 of something, it was a Victorian that went together and cataloged everything. And so... And, and this is because of Victorian obsessiveness, I think. Yes, it is Victorian obsessiveness and detail orientation, and that a noble belief that if you just counted up all the examples of something, you could control it. So, the first book of tea leaf reading that we know about was published in 1919 and it was called reading tea leaves good title um by quote a highland seer unquote and it was published in 1919 and i have seen a version of it with the words 1881 or the, the date 1881 attached but whether that was a date attached at random by a crazy person or a date attached to a earlier version of it I don't know that people uh, will say things like, this is the oldest book on the topic. And you're like, Ooh, how old? Oh, 1919. That's not very old. Um, yes, this is another example of something <laughs> that we would probably think of as being uh, very, very old indeed, which indeed, uh, and turns out to be a fairly recent invention. Right. Um, so the, the, the oldest book about it is that, that we know of is, is that book. And that book comes out and it is feeding a pre-existing craze. It is not, the thing that starts the craze, the, the craze, like I said, I think just sort of evolves naturally. So would there be an oral tradition then that uh, predates that? Presumably? There would be an oral tradition passed down by people's maiden aunts and that was attached to ethnic servants. So in England, you would have your Irish servant girl uh, read your tea leaves because she was a wild Celt and connected to fairies. And in America, you would have your black servant do it or your Cuban servant if you lived in uh, that part of uh, America. Or sometimes you would have a gypsy servant do it and yes. it became connected to the gypsies, the Romani. People you've subordinated are magical. Right. The the, the Romani who, in uh, fairness, very much leaned into being magic because it turns out that if <laughs> they fear you and hate you. There's a slightly better chance you won't be set on fire. Hey, um, it's a gig. <laughs> it's a gig. And, you know, it takes money from the whatever uh, Romani is for Gaijin. So that's all good. Gullo, I think, is what Romani is for Gaijin. Anyway, so uh, in America, the uh, tea shop, the gypsy tea shop, as uh, so-called, blew up in America right around the same time as uh, Reading Tea Leaves was published. So we're in, we're around the 1919 era. And a lot of that may have been because there was a ton of Russian refugees from the Russian Civil War who came to America and they all opened tea rooms and their grandmas all started reading tea leaves because either it's a thing that you actually did in Eastern Europe, although it looks like you mostly read coffee grounds because that's what Turks did. Um, or they picked it up from the fact that Americans picked it up from British people and said, well, we can pretend to read tea leaves just like anybody else. We all know Baba Yaga. We all know Baba Yaga. We're, we're, um, uh, foreign and subject. So we must be magic. So the, the, the course in, in America sort of bounces from the, the, the black woman who reads your tea leaves. And that is, by the way, goes back to the 1890s. There's a, uh, artist named Harry Roseland who did a number of photographs and paintings of women reading 
tea leaves and he basically took the same photograph that he took the source photograph he took in the 1890s and he kept changing it over the 30 years that he painted pictures of people reading tea leaves. And you can tell that the expression on the tea leaf reader's face changes as uh, his audience is more invested in saying, no, we want, we want to make sure that the, the, the black people are happy, make the black woman who's reading the tea leaves happy. And so he would, he would sort of, the, the original photograph is she's just looking like a, like a fortune teller, sort of scowly and mystical. But it's then not as, to have a service industry job, you have to smile while you you're doing it. You have to smile, it. exactly. And, and so you can sort of see that, um, uh, that, uh, change in American cultural habit, uh, over the 30 years from basically uh, the 30 years that basically are the introduction of Jim Crow, the final end of reconstruction in the 1890s, uh, leading up into the, the, the new Jim Crow of the twenties and the, and the second KKK. So that's an interesting sidelight that you can get to through tea leaf reading that I didn't know. And then the American tea leaf reader spirit got imported into Cuban Espiritismo as one of the things that the domestic hearth goddess or hearth, uh, uh, Santero, uh, does is tea leaf read. And so that uh, connection makes its way into uh, Santeria. And now God knows if there's, you know, Santeria tea leaf reading that's outside my remit. So anyway, all of this gives us our backdrop. Um, uh, and if we have time, we can talk about the uh, police crackdown on tea on tea rooms across America. Right. But, but but I can hear Hoyle saying, "Where did the zodiac? Where's my in zodiac there? cup?" In 1904, and I and I bet Hoyle did not expect I could get this much information. <laughs> in 1904, there's a company called Nelrose that introduces what they called the Cup of Fortune, and the Cup of Fortune is a teacup made specifically for tea leaf reading. So you can see that this uh, thing that moves from sort of back parlors in maybe the late 18th or early 19th century up into the middle class. And now, now there's a consumer market for it. The Victorians have formalized everything. Now we have a consumer market that develops in the Edwardian era. And right. It's specialty equipment. Now, is this purchased by your uh, the head of the household, or is this purchased by your service industry person as their job equipment? No, this is purchased by the uh, by the not the head of the household. That's the man, and he has nothing to do with this foolishness. This is women's arts, Robin. Um, uh, this is purchased by probably the daughter, one it's one it, one it assumes, uh, but maybe by the mother if she's um, uh, either indulgent or superstitious herself. And you would buy this, and then you would have your your servant or tea leaf reader, or by now your professional tea leaf reader, because you can bring those in. Um, uh, and that's where the Highland seer comes in, because they might be Scots. Oh, creepy. Um, uh, come in and read your tea leaves. And um, uh, they would be available and you might do it also for the Victorian or Edwardian equivalent of slumber parties or um, uh, get togethers. You'd all get together, all the young marriageable women get together for a, for a tea outing. And then they drink the tea out of the Zodiac cups and whichever of them is swatted up. There's because there's no rows, no fools. Just like when you buy a tarot card deck, you get a little tiny packet on how to read tarot cards. Um, when you bought this cup, you would get a little packet on how to read the Zodiac teacup. And if you're looking for the freaking Fonz at Orego, of Zodiac uh, Cup Tassiography, you could do worse than to read the directions for the Nelrose Cup of Fortune, which were um, uh, uh, first came out in 1904. The fifth edition revised is online at the mystictearoom.com website, run by the seemingly indefatigable Catherine Ironwood, who is uh, just uh, the, the gold standard as far as... Um, uh, 
superstitions you didn't know had more to them. Um, she has a tre- tremendous amount of hoodoo information as well on her other web- websites. But here, she's also got the Mystic Tea Room, which uh, provides you lots of the information that I have provided you, um, and also a copy of the Nell Rose Cup of Fortune. So if you want specific Zodiac Cup tassiography, download that. I think it's like a, f- a 10-page booklet. Or... The uh, reading tea leaves by a Highland seer is, of course, the uh, the the Fonzette Origo of all of this, and is uh, also <laughs> out of uh, out of copyright. It's in public domain, so go ahead and uh, you know download that off archive.org or wherever you'd like. And Cat Ironwood also recommends a book by Sasha Fenton called Teacup Reading, which um, covers uh, the territory in uh, Ironwood approved. Uh, rigor and style. So uh, I personally don't intend to get into tea leaf reading, but I'm glad to know that there is a book for it. But the um, uh, but that is uh, the Zodiac Cup tassiography seems to be basically like you say um, it's hobby equipment. So in much the same way that people uh, never knew that they needed these kind of crazy expensive uh, uh, fly fishing rods until the fly fishing rod company said, Oh, you need one with a backwards uh, gambit. Um, and then everyone has to have backwards gambit fly fishing rods. Same thing. Uh, you didn't know that you needed a Zodiac teacup, but um, in the fungible uh, way of the new age, um, once you're into one crazy thing, you might as well be into another crazy thing. And I always feel sad for people who are true believers in UFOs that nonetheless think that witchcraft is malarkey and they have to walk into the, the store UFOs are science. and see their they're, UFOs they're, they're, and their they're witchcraft up in the sky books. That makes them science. Right. Yeah. It, it's, it's clear. And, and, and or Isn't vice versa. Magic? Your, your devout, um, uh, uh, Wiccans who have to go buy their, uh, Wiccan books from a bunch of nonsense UFO craziness. And, uh, put up with that foolishness. So I, my heart goes out to, to people who are selective in their new agery, um, uh, poor folks. But, uh, the, the market, a, uh, in 1904, as in now, knows that, that too bad you're the minority. Most people who are into one are into all. And so why not combine your tea leaf reading with your zodiac? So that means then that, Ken, that you and I need merely understand the manufacture of ceramics. And then we can go and do a Kickstarter that could be some other form of uh tassiar you know get the boring old zodiac out of there yeah we could do a cthulhu mythos uh, tassiography cup yeah find out which indifferent cosmic entity will nonetheless bring about your death because you're Mm -hmm. foolish enough to look into it right or um uh, the the the, i'm sure that we could come up with a lovely chambersian tea leaf reading system by which uh 99 of the little uh symbols mean you will find your true love and the hundredth means yellow sign. You're dead. <laughs> yellow sign. You're dead. Yes. Uh, and uh, you know we could do uh, we could do a, a polyhedral where the you know the one uh, numbers one till twenty and the one with the most clumps on it is your is your roll. Right. It would be a very slow combat. Yeah. But, but you know. But so so satisfying. I think I think we combine that with a polyhedral infuser and we may be set. We may have actually conquered the next great uh, uh, product market of the industry. Oh, wow. It's a good thing we're not uh, recording these and letting other people listen to them. And so broadcasting them. That'd be crazy the talk. Bench. That would be, uh, that'd be foolish of us. Well, uh, speaking of uh, the, uh, the condescension that our uh, future selves will nonetheless have for our current selves, I think it's time for us to uh, uh, exit this podcast. That's my tea leaf prediction, that this podcast is about to come to an end. But my even better prediction is that there'll be yet another one next Friday. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Astfagelm. Art Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. 
Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Drink deep from the cup of wisdom with such backers as... Rob Toll. Roger Edge. Modern Myths. Joe Webb. And Ludovic Chabant. Snag Ken and Robin Apparel and other Erudite merchandise. At tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. New designs include... This bicycle does not make toast. And nod knowingly if you're a tulpa. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff.